Everybody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're going to go back to Bible school. Amen. Um, I, I definitely echo what Pastor said. There's too many, too often, not just in this, not, not just in this church, but everywhere, where you believe a certain thing, and somebody asks you, well, why do you believe that? And you just kind of shrug or shrug and say, I don't know. It's just kind of what we've always believed. It's what I've always been taught. And, and in the class, if you've, you've heard this joke before, do me the courtesy of laughing again. Uh, praise the Lord. I liken it to um, this joke I heard. You've probably heard it, whether from me or elsewhere, anyhow. Uh, basically, so a young couple gets married, and she's making a roast, and she's putting it in the pan. But before she puts it in the pan, she cuts off the two ends of the roast, puts it in, and cooks it. And it confuses her husband, her new husband. He says, I didn't make any sense. Why'd you do that? And she says, just like we do, I don't know, because mama did. Well, so the next opportunity, they're at mama's house for Sunday lunch, and she's making a roast. And lo and behold, she does the same thing. She cuts the ends off of that roast, puts it in the roasting pan, puts that thing in the oven, and she kind of says, hey, mama, why do you do that? And she says, I don't know. Grandma does it. Okay. Well, holiday rolls around, and Grandma, guess what Grandma's making? Grandma's making a pot roast, and Grandma lops off the two ends of that roast. Perfectly good meat. I don't know why anybody would do that, but she does that, and she puts it in the pan, puts it in the oven, and goes on about her business, and then the mom asks, granddaughter asks, Grandma, why do you do that? Oh, it's a funny story. When I first got married, our roasting pan was too small, and the roast wouldn't fit, and so I just got into the habit of cutting them off. So it's, it's important to know why we do what we do. It's important to have an understanding of the lifestyle that you live and why you live it so that somebody doesn't come to you and say, well, well, why do you not do this? Or why do you believe you should do this? And you don't just say, because mama and grandma did it. But you can point to them in the word of God where it says, because thus saith the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We, we've prayed and we're, we're already teaching, I believe. Uh, there, there's, there's a scripture that I really enjoy. It's Proverbs 25 and 2, and it seemed like the other morning in prayer, the Lord really highlighted this to me. And it, it really is relevant to why we call this class Deeper Life. Because this is what 25 and 2 of Proverbs says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. See, there's things that when you read the word of God as a cursory reader, on the surface, they're gonna be really easy for you to find. For example, the plan of salvation. It should be right there, front and center. It's easy to find it. But there are some things that are hidden in the word that you've got to go deeper to find. And those things, it says it's the honor of kings to search out those things. It gives God glory to hide them, but honor comes to kings when they search them out. And so we're going to dig deeper in the word of God, and hopefully you'll find that to be true. Amen? Amen. So, so as Pastor said, we're going to do this. We won't, we'll just surprise you when we do this. And so that way you can just come and salivate and just be, ex be, be excited regardless of what's going on. Praise the Lord. Um, but in, in, in Deeper Life, what we cover, we cover a various array of topics. We cover topics of television and movies, adornment, dress, hair. But before we get there, we've got to lay a foundation. Everybody say a foundation. foundation. We've got to lay a foundation of where it all begins because everything begins on the inside. Everybody take your big pointer finger and point it right smack dab in the middle of your chest and say, it begins here. It begins right here. 
I got to get this right. Amen. Let's start with Romans 3 and 23. For all, everybody say all. all. It doesn't say some or most. It says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one is exempt. No one's ruled out. All have sinned. And then 1 John 2 and 1 gives us a little encouragement. It says, my little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, because we all we know we sin, amen. Ever since you got baptized, you've lived perfect, right? I so wish I would have. <laughs> but my goodness, man, there, there is... There's things that stub my toes, and I'm like, I did that last week. <laughs> Amen? Just being real. But it says, if any man sin, we have an advocate. Thank you, Jesus. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You have an advocate when you mess up. He was perfect. He was spotless. He was without blemish. And he's your advocate. That means he's in your corner, Brother Trevor. Praise the Lord. You're in for a long, dry sermon. <laughs> I'm kidding. I will try my best not to make this dry. The word of God shouldn't be dull or boring. Amen. His word is spirit. His word is life. This Bible that we read, it calls us as followers of Christ to a life of holiness. In order to obey this biblical command, everyone say it is biblical. It is imperative that we first understand the relationship between the human nature and sin. So tonight we are going to look at the power of sin with the respect to us, humanity, and particularly with respect to the born-again Christian. This will form a foundation on our study of holiness. So let's define sin, shall we? Sin is both a nature and an act. Actually, in Hebrew, it's fascinating because the word for Hebrew is singular, shatah. So it really doesn't address your sinful acts, which is what we're so busy trying to address, right? But it really specifies the nature. You've got to address the nature, right? Jesus said that except that an axe is laid to the root, man, you can do all kinds of things to get rid of bad fruit. When you cut down weeds, those things multiply. And I spend good money on weed control, man, because those things, if you don't, they propagate like crazy. They spread all over. Those seeds get out when you mow your yard, and then there's just more and more and more. And if you try to just cut them, what happens? They keep coming back. What you got to do is address the root. So the Hebrew word for sin really teaches us you don't just address the fruit. You got to get to the root. Amen. Don't just prune your branches. Get to the heart. The Bible defines sinful acts in at least three different ways. I said at least. Number one, 1 John 3 and 4 says that sin is the transgression of the law. All disobedience of God's commandments is sin, whether by commission or omission. Never said, oh, Lord, help me. When he said, thou shalt and you don't, you've committed trespass. 
There's 613 commandments, 365 are negative, 297, I believe, if the math is right, are positive. That means 365 thou shalt not, but the rest of them are thou shalt. Omission, commission, it's important. Number two, it says whatever is not of faith, according to Romans 14, 23, is sin. So that means anything incompatible with faith in God is sin. If we believe something's wrong, or if we have doubts about it, but we do it anyway, we've gone against what we believe to be the will of God and sin. And what that means is we have manifested a willingness to rebel against God. And that is a sinful attitude. Even if the act is not wrong for someone else, it becomes wrong for us because it violates our conscience and contradicts the faith principle. Number three, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That's James 4.17. So this apparently refers to a choice between morality and immorality or a choice between obeying or disobeying one of God's commands. But not every failure to do a good deed or the best thing in a given situation is sin. When there's an opportunity to do X, Y, or Z and you chose Y but X or Z were better just because you didn't choose X or Z doesn't mean Y was wrong. It just wasn't the best, but you didn't sin. Does that make sense? So temptation is not sin. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So when you're tempted, you've not sinned. Right? But the Bible says when lust bringeth forth, right? When it's conceived in you, then it brings forth sin. But that temptation itself is not sin. It will produce sin if you continue to entertain it and yield to it. And that's either mentally or physically. Not every mistake, fault, or personality flaw is a moral sin. Just because your wife was rude to you doesn't mean she's sinning. Well... I might ride home alone. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But we do, I think, sometimes put those things in a box with sin. Yes. This person was rude. But sin, no, it wasn't. They were just rude. But some people just kind of have abrasive personalities, right? Some people are just abrupt in their nature, and they don't really know how to communicate well. There's not a lot of flower with their speech. It's just direct and to the point. That doesn't mean they're sinful. It's just how they communicate. However, and everybody underlined this, we should seek to improve in these areas. <laughs> Ask God to help us, forgive us. And, and let's say you do know, most of the time, you know you've got an abrasive personality. Most of the time. But it's always somebody else's fault, right? Well, they shouldn't have taken it that way. Well, work on the delivery. Work on the delivery. Amen. Ask God to help you. He will. Okay. For example, this is what happens. Paul asked for forgiveness from the Corinthians because what he did was he refused to accept their, their support, but he felt like he may have offended them by not taking that support. And so because he may have offended, it wasn't a sin, but it may have offended them, he asked them to forgive. And so here are some examples. Rudeness. Oversleeping. Habitual lateness. Or just being insensitive, husband. Picking on our husbands tonight. Let's talk about that nature you were born with. The Bible emphatically declares that every human being has sinned. 
In chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, Paul demonstrates that all mankind is guilty before God, and he reached this conclusion in Romans 3, 9 through 12. It says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And then the verse we started with, Romans 3 and 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then 1 John 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And it says his word is not in us. So even the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 8 and 46, then 2 Chronicles 6 and 36 says, There is no man that sinneth not. Sinful acts arise from the nature of sin that all human beings inherited from Adam, who was the first representative of the human race. Because this is the way it works. Like, we all have a federal government, right? And so all of the state governments are under that federal government. Well, Adam is like the federal head of the human family. Because before he sinned, there was no offspring. So therefore, when he sinned, all of the offspring was still in him. And so by proxy then, we were guilty of sin when he trespassed because you're still in Adam, right? And that's why we got to get out of Adam and into Jesus. Who was the second Adam? So there are two other terms that we'll often use to refer to the sinful nature. We can sometimes call it the flesh or the carnal man. What's the penalty for sin? death. The penalty for sin is death, but just as we were led into sin and death by one man, Adam, so can we receive forgiveness and life through one man, Christ. Romans 5.19 says, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But even after the new birth, this is going to come, to us, come as a shock to all of us, we still possess a sinful nature. I know immediately after you were baptized and you received the gift of the Holy Ghost, you were never, ever tempted to do anything wrong again. Could be five seconds after you got out of the baptistry. It's like you just got a target, you know. So you still, we would all agree, then we still possess a sinful nature. Okay. Galatians 5, 16, 17 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And then 1 John 1, 8 says, we already said that if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar, but this is also what happens. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the sinful nature consists of a compulsion to commit sinful acts. It's more than just a capacity to sin. Because Adam, even in the state of innocence, Adam had a capacity to sin because we know he did. So he had this capacity even in innocence. So if we let the sinful nature lead us, it will always, always, always lead to sin. 
Romans 7, Paul taught that neither the law of God nor the law of the mind brings power over the law of sin. What that means is neither God's moral law nor the good intentions, no matter how good your intentions are, of the human mind can impart enough power to overcome the principle of sin that compels humans to sin. This is what Romans 7, 21 and 25 says, and I'm going to read it in the nearly inspired version. be here all week. <laughs> this is what Paul said. So I find this law at work. And I think we'll, we'll all be able to relate to this. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For I, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because that's the answer. That's the only way to get delivered from that bond of death. Amen? So then I myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And there's a, a New Testament commentator, F.F. Bruce, he, he says it like this. The inability persists only so long as I myself, that is, in my own strength, fight the battle. I myself is emphatic. It is I by myself who experiences this defeat and frustration. But I, as a Christian, thank God, am not left to myself. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has come to dwell within me, and his presence and power make an almighty difference. Similarly, Paul stated, you cannot do the things that you would in Galatians 5.17. He meant this is true only as long as we follow the flesh. So according to verses 16, 18, and 22, if we follow the spirit, we can indeed override the lusts and works of the flesh. Only if we follow the spirit. The law of the spirit does not destroy the law of sin but it overcomes it. We can draw an analogy from the influence of gravity on a bird. How many of you would agree with me, birds fly? And at times I'm like, man, wouldn't that just be great? Just flap my wings and just kind of rise and soar above and get to work without traffic? That'd be a-okay. That'd be great. So that's aerodynamics, right? When a bird flaps its wings, there's a law of aerodynamics at work. But when the bird stops flapping, the law of gravity didn't stop or cease. The law of aerodynamics was just working, superseding the authority of the law of gravity. But when the bird stops flapping, gravity reasserts its authority and drags that bird back down to the ground. So as long as you walk in the spirit, flap your wings, you've got power over gravity, the law of sin of the flesh. right? But if you stop flapping, guess what happens? You start walking again in the flesh. Romans 6, 6 through 7 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. When you got baptized, you were dead. You were buried. You don't bury alive people, you bury dead people. 
Romans 6, 11 through 14 says, likewise, Paul's a southerner. He says, reckon. He was southern before there was southern. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Number 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6, 17 and 18 says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. You were. But you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Amen. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. You can't live in the church with one foot and the world with the other foot. You've got to make up your mind. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But Romans 6 and 22 says, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness in the end everlasting life. Let's dig a little deeper. At the new birth, the old man actually died. The old Jew died to sin. In this passage, the old man does not mean the sinful human nature itself, but that unregenerate lifestyle and sin's dominion died. God did not eradicate the sinful nature at conversion, but he destroyed its dominion or reign over you. If we as a Christian now sin, it's because you chose to, not because you're forced to. So when somebody says, I can't help it, before they're born again, they literally can't. They can't help it. It's what's in them. It's what they know. But we do have the ability to, quote, help it by the Holy Ghost. So if we sin voluntarily, we submit to a principle with no legal or no actual power over us. We must recognize the truth of our liberation and act upon it. We must count ourselves as indeed dead to sin, but alive to God. One writer states it like this. We are to keep before us this fact. Everybody say, it's a fact. It's a fact. That we are no longer slaves. Right. We can now stand up to sin and say no to it. Before, we had no choice, but now you have one. When we sin as Christians, we do not sin as slaves, but as individuals with the freedom of choice. We sin because we chose to sin. But the Holy Ghost gives us power to live righteously and to be living witnesses that God has indeed saved us from sin. Romans 8, 2 and 4 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. F.F. Bruce commented on this also. He says, Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It is rather a question of the Holy Spirit producing his fruit in the life 
reproducing those graces which were seen in the perfection in the life of Christ. The law prescribed a life of holiness, but it was powerless to produce such a life because of the inadequacy of the human material that it had to work upon, the flesh. But what the law was powerless to do has been done by God. All that the law required by way of conformity to the will of God is now realized in the lives of those who are controlled by the Spirit and are released from their servitude to the old order. When you get the Holy Ghost, His commandments have become His enabling. Amen? Because you get the law written upon your heart, but He not only puts the law there, but He gives you the equipper to live by the law. Everybody say, we must not sin. Should not, must not, cannot. Since the Christian has power over sin, he should not sin. The Spirit gives us the ability to live an obedient life, but it's our responsibility to make use of this power. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, Bishop. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Romans 6 and 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. In fact, if the Christian continues to live in sin or allows unrepented sin to remain in his life, he will not inherit salvation in the life to come. By his sinful, faithless lifestyle, he will lose the salvation he received by his previous repentance at faith and faith. So let's look at a few points on this topic that are made by Scripture. So 1 John 2, 3, and 6 says, The true test of whether or not we know God, have the love of God, and abide in God, is whether or not we keep His commandments and live a Christ-like life. Romans 8, 14 says, Those who are led by the Spirit are, and that's meaning remain, those that are led by the Spirit will remain the sons of God. The child of God who rebels against God's authority is not unborn, but God will disown and disinherit him. James 1 and 27 says, True religion means to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And according to Ephesians 5, 27, God will have a spotless church. Revelation says we must overcome temptation, sin, and the things of this world in order to receive an eternal reward. 2 Corinthians 7 says we must cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Hebrews and Peter tell us that we must follow holiness in order to see the Lord. Jesus Christ lived an innocent, sinless life as an example for us to emulate. And when he gave you the Holy Ghost, he gave you the power to emulate it. We have Christ in us to reproduce his life in us. We have confidence towards God only if our hearts do not condemn us. We have confidence if we keep his commandments and do his will. If we have unrepented sin in our lives, our hearts are full of condemnation and guilt. A Christian with unrepented sin in his life cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor eternal life. A born-again person must continue to walk by faith, which includes obeying the word of God in order to receive salvation in the end. The child of God will lose his salvation if he allows unrepented sin and unbelief to remain in his life when the Lord comes for him. Although nothing can separate us from God, 
we ourselves can choose to leave him just as we chose to come to him. We make the decision. We determine whether or not we will abide or remain in him. When a Christian sins, he has allowed the sinful nature and the devil to provide leadership. God does not tempt anyone to sin, and sin is not of God. So someone who sins is the servant of sin and serving the devil. And you can make it either a temporary or a permanent situation. Simply stated, as a Christian, we have two choices. He can walk after the flesh, which leads to sin and death, or we can walk after the spirit, which leads to righteousness and eternal life. So when Paul admonished believers not to continue in sin, he reminded them, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a payment coming. There's a payment on its way. If we sin, everybody say, I must repent. We would agree, even though a Christian should not sin, we've established the fact that we do make mistakes. So if we do sin, we can obtain forgiveness by repentance. The one thing worse than sin is a refusal to confess sin. God can save a sinner, but he will not save the one who refuses to confess sin. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm sure you've probably heard somebody kind of make salvation like a scales of justice kind of a situation, right? Well, if I just do enough good to outweigh the bad in my life, then I'm going to make it. That's not, that's not the way it works. Because even one sin, it tips the scales in your disfavor. Right? The only way to tip the scales in your favor is repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen? That's the only way. And then when you make, when you make a mistake, when you stub your toe, when you fall short of glory, repent. Those scales will tip right back. We don't work on a system of positives and negatives. Because the Bible teaches that prior righteousness will not cover present or future sin. That's why every year they had to perform the sacrifices because it just pushed it forward a year at a time. But that's kind of like, I mean, imagine how miserable you would be if every time you had to come to the house of God that time, that day of the year, because your sin was ever before you. That guilt, that shame, that condemnation was always having to be dealt with. But thank God it's gotten put behind us, amen? Ezekiel 18, 24. When the righteous turneth away from his righteousness... And committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live. All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. It's like it doesn't even count. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. The Lord specifically requires repentance of Christians who commit sin. Let's look at Revelation 2 and 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place. Man, just ponder that for a minute. Remember from where 
you're falling. And when you do, repent. And do the first works. Or else I'm going to come quickly and remove your candlestick out of your place. You are not irreplaceable. We are not irreplaceable. As much as God wants you to be saved and died for you to be saved, gave his blood to be saved, for you to be saved, you determine whether you're going to make it or not. Repent. If a person sincerely lives for God, commission of sin will be at most a temporary lapse and an abnormality. When a consecrated Christian temporarily falls into sin, usually he has immediately a repentant heart and will receive instant forgiveness at repentance. Of course, repentance includes godly sorrow and regret for what has been done as well as a present desire and intention not to commit that sin again. There, there's godly sorrow the Bible talks about worketh death, right? But there's a kind of sorrow that not to be repented of, right? Paul wrote a letter and made these Corinthians sorry, and he was like, but you know what? I'm not really sorry that I wrote it because it made you sorry, and it made you sorry enough to go and repent. And so I'm not sorry that I wrote it because you, you repented and you got so sorry after a godly sort that it turned your heart to God from your mistakes back to God because it says the sorrow of the world worketh death because people that make mistakes in this world, they're sorry for the consequences more so than they're sorry for the actions, right? They're not really sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught. But there's no sorrow there because there's no, there's no turning. Repentance means to turn. In Hebrew, it's teshu. But it means literally the definition is burn the bridge behind you. Teshuva means to turn that there is no going back because the way back has been destroyed. That's the kind of godly repentance he wants. Godly sorrow, the Bible says, worketh repentance, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So when we truly get to a godly place of sorrow, you're going to be so sorry that you hurt God's feelings, that you destroy how you got back to that place, that you can't ever get there again. The Bible also teaches, thank God, that backsliders can be restored. Amen. And when you read passages like Hebrews 6, 4, and 6, and 10, 26 through 31, they don't contradict this truth. Read it carefully. Study it. That's not what it's talking about. But what, what they teach is the following. If we reject the atoning death of Christ, there's no other way to be saved. You've got to go through the cross. A backslider can harden his heart so much, go so far into delusion, or deny the work of the Spirit to the point that God can no longer deal with him, and in that condition, they cannot be saved. Where we talk about, there's three times in Scripture in Romans where God, it says God gave them up. Three times where God's given up on them, gave them up to this, gave them up to this, and that's the state of that person. In that condition, you can't even repent. You don't know to repent. You're not even sorry enough to repent. Man. Man, so every time you feel the convicting power of God, thank him for it. Thank him for that conviction. I like practical things. Y'all like practical things? Let's talk about how to overcome sin practically. Since the potential to sin... That sinful nature we talked about remains in the born-again believer. 
as a practical matter, how is it possible to overcome sin on a daily basis? Number one, it's your favorite four-letter word, pray. Pray. You got to pray. Prayer establishes that connection. Prayer will draw us closer to God. Through prayer, we commune with Christ and progressively absorb more of his mind and attitude. Paul prayed on many occasions that believers would develop spiritual strength and holiness of life. If the prayers of another can avail to develop holiness in us, how much more can our own prayers do that? It's importantly, or particularly important to pray in the spirit. Paul often talked about not in his own understanding, right? Because the spirit makes intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered. It's the spirit that knows the need of that individual and makes intercession on behalf of that individual. So that's what we're talking about. Get into a place where you pray in the Holy Ghost. Reach a dimension of prayer where the mind concentrates totally upon God and not the clock and the human spirit unites with the Holy Spirit. This includes, but is not limited to, speaking in tongues. When we pray in the Spirit, the Spirit himself, it says, helps our weaknesses or our infirmities and intercedes through us to pray for what we truly need, even though we don't know exactly how or what to pray. I'm sure you've been in prayer, and in your understanding, things have come to begin to pray for, that you're like, where did that come from? Those words were not my words. That was the Spirit giving you an understanding of what was actually in need, and you prayed according to the will of the Spirit, but in your own language that you could understand it. That brings edification. Spiritual prayer is a powerful weapon of warfare against temptation. Jude admonishes us in Jude 20, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Of course, it's not always possible to pray extensively at the moment of temptation. For this reason, it is important to have a consistent, strong prayer life at all times because sometimes when that temptation comes, you don't have the time to say, hey, time out, give me a minute. I'll come back in five minutes when I've prayed up, come back to resist you, right? Because the Bible says to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We like the flee from you part, but the resistance part, we don't really care for so much about because there's only one place to get strength enough to resist and that's in prayer. You got to submit yourself to God in prayer to have strength to resist the devil for him to flee from you. Because where is that in, in Acts where, where he said, Paul, I know and Jesus, I know, but who are you? That man didn't have a prayer life. And so in that moment, no authority, no power, no ability. So we've got to pray. Second, we've got to engraft or implant the word of God in our hearts so that we will obey his word as a matter of course. It just becomes your nature to obey the word. James 1.21 in the New King James says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We've got to absorb the word until it becomes a very part of us. God's word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. And we can do this by hearing, reading, memorizing, and meditating upon the word. For example, Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, 
that I might not sin against thee. And verse 16 says, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. And then number 105 says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So when temptation comes, we can recall the word and speak it. At the moment sin presents itself, we must immediately begin to meditate on the word before there is time for anything else. When you read Matthew 4.11, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? It is written, Satan, it is written, it is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Amen. Use the word. But you got to read the word. Third, we must personalize the truth of God's word. We must realize both our personal ability and our personal responsibility to obey God and resist sin. We must recognize that we died to sin. In the time of temptation, there's a principle. It's called the know, reckon, and yield principles. They're found in Romans 6. So know who we are. Know what's happened to you. Know that when you were born again, you died to sin. And know, therefore, that sin has no power over you. Know it. Don't doubt it. Know it. And then reckon. Really, that's a mathematical term for accounting, basically. Put it on your account that this is true. Act as if you have died to sin and sin has no power over you. And then yield to God. Replace sinful habits with an active performance of God's will as revealed by his word and his spirit. And we should remind ourselves that we are not obligated to sin and that we are free. We have the power of the spirit available to us and we can resist and overcome the temptation to sin. And number four, we must not give the sinful nature opportunities. Instead, we must consciously avoid tempting or dangerous situations. An alcoholic should never go to a bar. I mean, that's just asking for trouble. You know, God delivered me 15 years ago from alcohol. I'm just saying, God delivered me 15 years from alcohol. But, but I like to every once in a while just go and test, see how delivered I am. And go pull up on a bar stool and... You know, sit next to God drinking beer and let him spill it on me and just kind of, you know, but no, why would you even put yourself in that situation? I don't know what God's delivered you from, but you know, but don't put yourself in that situation where you're going to be that tested and tempted. Amen. Praise God. So we must not feed fleshly desires by thinking, reading, watching or indulging in things that would inflame those lusts. We must discipline the flesh and daily kill the desires. Basically, this means to cut off sinful thoughts and desires as they begin to develop. As they begin to develop. Philippians 4 and 8 teaches us that we must learn to think on good things and make every thought obedient to Christ. Like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. We must control bodily appetites because if we overindulge in physical appetites, it will be more difficult to deny ourselves in other areas. It's our other favorite four-letter Christian word, fast. Amen. Fasting is an excellent way to discipline the physical body, not to punish it, but to control it. To bring that body under subjection. Romans 8, 12, 13 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And Galatians 5 and 24 says, And they that, have Christ, that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And Galatians 6 and 14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Finally, we must train ourselves to develop proper habits of Christian living instead of sinful habits. When you give something bad up, replace it with something good. When you watch too much TV and you cut that off, fill that time with Bible reading, for example. Don't just sit idly by because you're going to go back to what you used to do to fill that time up. Does that make sense? Fill it because by nature, a vacuum will always be filled. So if you create a vacuum by eliminating bad things out of your life, replace it with a good habit. Developing good habits requires several things. Repetition, 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 repetition. Commitment to consistency, diligence, repetition, refusal to make any exceptions, and refusal to get discouraged because you fail. That's where so many of us make the mistake. You're, you're doing great. You got up 20 days in a row and you prayed at the time you wanted to get up. And then that day 21 comes and you say, man, not today. And you get up an hour or two later and you don't go to prayer. And then the next day you're just so discouraged and so downtrodden. Just, man, I just blew it. I, I'm, why? I'm not going to even keep trying. No. Get up the next day and start over. Says a righteous man falleth seven times, and a righteous man gets up eight. Finally, train those habits, make those habits, and we must yield to God as we formerly yielded to sin. When we recognize and experience a scriptural prompting to do God's will, we must meditate upon the action desired, make a decision to do it, and then yield yourself to doing it. Ever say sin, sin. And, grace. and grace. Thank God for grace. The grace of God does not automatically cover sin in the absence of genuine repentance. God provides forgiveness for all repented sin. It does not provide forgiveness for unrepented sin. In other words, grace makes forgiveness available for sins committed at repentance. Grace gives us both the desire and the power to do God's will and live a holy life. It is not a means by which God overlooks sin in the life of a, quote, helpless Christian. It does not let us continue in sin, and grace is not licensed to sin. In fact, Titus tells us that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So grace is a teacher. We can't turn grace into disgrace. 
by continually abusing grace and violating grace and thinking that, man, grace is going to just save me because I continue to do the things that I want to do, disregard God and do whatever I feel like doing, whatever the flesh wants to do, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. No, you need his grace. You've got to have his grace, but don't make it a disgrace. Amen? Because grace deals with the sinful act and the nature. Grace does not merely cover up sin, but it enables the repentant man first to avoid sin's penalty and then start a whole new life free from sin's dominion. The same grace that reaches back to forgive past sin also reaches forward to prevent and overcome future sin, and by God's grace, we have the power to live a holy life. Praise the Lord. Somebody clap your hands unto Jesus. Somebody give him thanks for his grace. Somebody thank him that grace teaches us. Thank him for not leaving you where he found you. Thank you, Lord. Praise God.